welcome to mini episode 104 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And I have six spooky stories for you today. And the last story is from January the 9th, 2021. And story number one comes from Nicole. One of my mother's friends owns an old farmhouse, built at some point in the 1800s. She was leaving for a weekend and had a dog at the time named Lola. She was very sweet. She had asked my brother and me to watch Lola for her for the weekend, which my brother and I were happy to do. We visited the house the weekend before we went to dog sit so we could become familiar with the house and with Lola. As soon as I walked in the door, I could feel it. There was someone, or rather something, on the stairs. I have this weird ability to feel things, energies and ghosts, if you will. My mom thinks I'm some sort of empath. I have no idea what it is, all I know is that I'm very good at picking up on people's moods and energies, and I always know if a place is haunted. The rest of the first visit was uneventful. When we went the next weekend to watch the dog, I got the same feeling entering the house. No matter where you were in the house, it was as if there was always somebody following you. The first night we were there, my brother and I were in the kitchen making dinner. We were staying over for the weekend, and we heard someone call, Hello? From the dining room. My brother froze. I grabbed a kitchen knife. Probably not the best move, but I had to defend my little brother, and we went to check out the dining room. I looked in and heard, Hello? Again, and found the source of the talking. The owner of the house neglected to mention that she owned a freaking talking bird. Needless to say, we both got a good scare that night. We slept in spare rooms at opposite ends of the second floor and of course Lola chose to sleep with my brother. My brother preferred to sleep with the door open but I couldn't bring myself to leave it open. Every time I would turn away from the door it would feel like there was someone in the doorway watching me. At one point in the night I woke to hear what I thought were footsteps coming from the floor above me. Since the hallway had wooden floors I figured it was just Lola or my brother getting a drink or something from the kitchen and fell back asleep. The rest of the weekend was uneventful. My brother and I never talked about staying there. About a year later, my mom was talking about this same friend over dinner. I turned to my brother and said, Remember how that house was haunted? He gave me a brief, yep. And that was the end of the conversation. My mom was stunned, she had no idea. We never told that friend that we thought her house was haunted. We didn't want to make her feel bad, I guess. Last year, about six years after we watched Lola, I was home visiting my parents. My mom had just gotten home from visiting this same friend and she was beyond excited to tell me something. She came to me and said, you will never believe what so-and-so said to me today. We were in the parlor and she said, you know this house is haunted. And I think it's a girl who lived here when the house was first built. She then proceeded to show my mom the research she had done of the house and pictures she had of the families that occupied the house. She pointed to one girl, identifying her as the girl that haunts the attic. She said the girl frequently walks around in the attic and loves to move things around. Otherwise, she is friendly and likes to be in the company of others. My aunt recently moved into a guest house owned by the same person on that property. I'm waiting for her to tell me her thoughts about the house. She can pick up on things like I can and it's only a matter of time before she discovers the ghost girl. Many years ago, I lived in a house with a talking bird, and that's the real 
supernatural question of this story. That's the real conundrum. That's the mystery. Is how are birds able to talk like that? How are they such good mimics? Ah, the bird that I lived with did sirens, like all sorts of mad things. It's pretty impressive and also quite spooky when you, if especially if you don't know that the bird is able to talk. So totally, totally get that. I wonder if the owner of the house ever physically saw her and that's why they presumed that that was the person that haunted the house, that it was a girl who used to live there or whether she's just making that assumption just based on feelings or intuition. It's interesting. I wonder. And story number two comes from Ben. I moved into my first house on my own in October 2018 and the house was a definite doer-upper. Before I bought it, it had only been lived in by one person. Bear in mind it's a 1950s home, it is definitely not a new build, nor had it been decorated since the 1950s. Kitsch or horrendous, yet to be confirmed. After moving in, I set to renovating the house room by room. I set the rooms which were most important to me first, being the lounge, then the toilet room, and thirdly the master bedroom. The house had always felt as though it just didn't belong to me. Now with it being my first house on my own, I thought maybe it was just a first house feeling. But then the activity started. It started in the usual way. Shadows, feelings of being watched, menial items being moved, etc. But then the night terrors and the sleep paralysis started. I put this down to stress, initially, moving houses, moving jobs, etc. One night would stay with me forever. I had got back from a work trip and had the worst case of sleep paralysis I had ever experienced. I woke up midway through the night to a feeling of being completely paralysed, while still feeling as though I was completely able to see. Which is when I noticed the figure stood at the end of my bed. Not moving, just stood. It was very ominous in a non-threatening way, almost as though it was trying to tell me something. Needless to say, nights following were filled with dread of being revisited by this figure. That weekend, I decided to embark on the task of renovating the master bedroom. Maybe whoever or whatever it was felt as though I was sleeping in their bed. So I decided to put my stamp on it and make it feel more my own. I emptied the room, pulled the fitted wardrobes out and embarked on the painting. While painting around the radiator, something dropped from behind it. From first inspection, it looked like a rag, so I finished the section I was painting and went to move the rag. But on closer inspection, it came to fruition that the item that dropped was not a rag. It was in fact an old lady's nightie. In the exact spot that I had seen the figure. Since moving the nightie into a box in the boiler cupboard, I didn't dare take it out of the house. The activity has not stopped, rather it has slowed down. I've come to the realisation that I don't live here alone. Was this a symbol that the lady had actually visited me? Was it trapped residual energy? Or was she in fact dropping a hint that I should maybe tackle the mounting of clothes washing I had after my work trip? Who knows? But it was certainly freaky. That's always going to be the problem with buying and owning your first home alone is that if you buy, if you buy that house and you own that house, you are stuck with all the ghostly inhabitants that live there too. The bank aren't going to, they're not going to do anything about that. And owning it, buying your first house is bloody expensive. 
and for most people they just pump all of their savings into it so there are there's no other options you live with all the paranormal creatures that live in that house too and maybe she was coming back to just be like hey I know that you're re- re- redecorating and, and re- renovating this house but this is my house it was my house first and we're going to have to live alongside each other or maybe that's it maybe that's the key that you once you accept that it isn't yours you know you know you don't you don't own that house you don't own that woman you can't control what she does maybe that's the key to cohabiting and maybe you should just start a good sitcom and story number three comes from jessica myself and my husband had bought our first house and not long after had a baby girl we decided to move closer to my parents because they were looking after her while i worked full time It was around Halloween when we went to view a house that was in our price range. It was dusk at the time of the viewing, and the lights were not working. The estate agent advised that the electricity was turned off. As we looked around the house, we noticed a family lived there. There were two children's cots. There were high-vis jackets and work boots. There were photos of a family and babies. It looked like the family were just out while we looked around. We never put two and two together as to why the electricity was off while the family was living in the house. The house was only around four years old, so not creepy, big or old. We decided to put in an offer there and then for the bottom end of the asking price, which in Dublin in the middle of 2004's booming economy was stupid and meant there was no chance of getting this house for that price, but it was just us being a bit cheeky. We thought that the agent would say something like, We will pass it on to the vendor and I don't think it's going to be accepted. To our complete surprise, the agent said, Great, I'm sure they'll be happy with that offer. We were slightly surprised but secretly delighted. It was accepted and so our house hunting was over. A few weeks later, we went to sign the contract of sale with our solicitor. We went through most of the process, signed the contracts, etc. When suddenly the solicitor said, Oh yeah, and that poor man died. Before we could ask any more questions, the solicitor said that he just needed to get something, and as he stood up from his desk, he moved a sheet of paper slightly into our view. When the solicitor closed the door, my husband leaned over and looked at the paper. It was the man's death certificate, and his cause of death was hanging. I was shocked. Myself and my husband were trying to make sense of it, I was saying there was a high-vis jacket, so he could have died on a building site if he got caught up in something, just trying to think of anything that meant it didn't happen deliberately in the house. We didn't mention anything to our solicitor, and our minds were racing leaving the solicitor's office. When I got home, I told my mam, and she said that my dad's cousin lived on the road where we were buying the house. So the following day, my mam and I stopped by my dad's cousin's house and she confirmed that the man had taken his own life in the house. It was nearly a year since it happened. We felt it was okay to proceed with the sale, as we had already signed the contracts, and just thought it didn't mean anything bad for us or the house as such. Shortly after we found out about the house, my husband was in a small car crash. We moved into the house in February, and felt a bit wary in the house but otherwise okay. As the weeks went by, I felt more relaxed, but slowly bad things started to happen to my husband. He had another car crash. His dad passed away, his uncle passed away, 
His mom had a huge tumour removed from her stomach and my husband's health deteriorated. We didn't really think anything of it other than it was a really crap time for him. We went out for dinner one Sunday, a week shy of a full year since we were in the house. As we came home, my two-year-old daughter would not come into the house. She was never one for throwing tantrums, but she was hysterical. She was pointing to the staircase directly behind the front door and shouting, I don't like him. I don't like him. Eventually, we got her inside and calmed her down. She and my husband went upstairs and I went to the kitchen, where I heard her falling over and crying hysterically as she was walking on the landing directly under the attic door where the man had hung himself. Eventually, we got her settled and nothing more occurred that day. The next day, I was looking for something on a high shelf and me being five foot one, I never really used this particular shelf. I got a chair and pulled down what I was looking for when a small piece of newspaper fell down too. It was the man's death notice from the newspaper. In that moment, chills went up my spine because the anniversary of his death was the day before when my daughter reacted so strangely. I couldn't believe it. I showed my husband and he said I was white with the shock. It was just too much of a coincidence. Soon after, I booked an appointment with a spiritualist and he told me all about the bad luck my husband was having and about the man who hung himself in the house without any prompting from me. He said that the house needed to be cleansed because of all the negative energy. He said that the negative energy had attached itself to my husband as he was the corresponding male in the house after the man had hung himself. So we contacted a priest who was a friend of the family and asked him to bless the house. He came around one night and blessed the whole house. We went to bed that night and I woke at three in the morning to the house alarm going off. I went downstairs to the keypad panel and on the screen it would tell you where the fault was on the alarm so you knew which entry point was affected. On the panel this time, it stated no fault found. I quickly turned off the alarm, reset it and ran back to bed. After that day, we never experienced anything in the house. My husband's run of bad luck changed and we moved on with our lives. I recently asked my daughter did she remember that event, but she didn't remember it at all. On a side note, around this time I was reading a book by Lorna Byrne, Angels in My Hair. It described angels and that they are made up of these magnificent colours. Some are red, pink, green, blue, gold, etc. One day my daughter turned to me and asked if I could see the colours. I asked her what she was talking about and she went on to describe what Lorna Byrne described as angels in her book. If my daughter could read, I would have thought she was reading the book without me knowing. She described it in so much detail, it was uncanny. And then she told me, you don't see the colours like I do, you can't see them. It was weird. She spoke about the colours from time to time, and recently when I asked her about them, she said she remembers them clearly, and that she saw them a lot, but didn't know what they were. She's 17 now and hasn't seen them since she was a kid. I very randomly met Lorna Byrne, who is a very famous, I don't know what you call her, psychic medium? I don't know what what you would call her, but she claims to see angels. I have one of her books as well, which I haven't read. I should probably read it, but I met her and she's an interesting woman. We've always talked about how children are more open to these things they are more accepting of these things and probably are more willing to just embrace what they see and describe it to the adults around them and I, I wonder about 
energy staying in houses. I don't really know. Uh, it's difficult to know, isn't it? And it's but it's interesting that the spiritualist said, "Look at all these. You know, your your husband has this run of bad luck, and it's because of the house and whatever." Without being prompted, I think that's very interesting. But again, another case of buying a house and also buying all the terrible shit that comes with it. And story number four comes from Chantel. My name is Chantel and I'm a 20-year-old girl from Malta. My life is full of creepy stories, but I decided to write about something that didn't happen to me, but to my mum and my sister, as my experiences mainly involve dreams and feelings rather than actually seeing apparitions. My mum, like me, is a believer, but my sister is on the opposite end of the spectrum. This took place in the old Sanglia Parish Church here on the lovely island of Malta. It was the week of Good Friday, and for anyone who isn't familiar with how churches in Malta are during this period, all ornamental decorations are removed, as red drapes and carpets are all around the churches. But what makes our churches beautiful yet creepy during these festive times are the big statues that are placed around the church representing the Passion of Christ. So like every Sunday, my mum and my sister went to church. This day, I didn't go with them as I was sick. After Mass, my mum talked to the priest, and after, she and my sister, who was 15 or 16 at the time, started to admire the silver ornaments that were now stored at the cluttered sacristy. The walls were covered with old paintings, portraits of older priests and benefactors. It was a few minutes after Mass was finished, so the church was empty. There was an old black and white photo, and it was so old that it was a bit blurry, but my mum, being the history nerd she is, felt very drawn to it, and so did my sister, mysteriously enough. The photo was that of a procession. My mum remembers the prominent cross that was carried by a man. Out of the corner of her eye, my sister saw an old man staring at them looking very pleased. He wore olive green pants and a brown checked suit jacket. He looked like someone who took care of himself, but as my sister vividly described, he reeked of urine, although the man didn't look embarrassed. He wore a kindly smile and made his way to them. He walked slowly, which in itself wasn't odd, as he looked very mature. He quickly made conversation with them, mainly about the photo itself. He told them when the procession took place, and not only did he tell them which street it happened on, but where the photo was taken. The conversation wasn't that short, maybe five or six minutes, and through it all the subject stayed on the artefacts around them. As my sister started to make her way to the area where the old portraits were hung, he bid them farewell with a simple goodbye. At this time, both my mum and my sister were beside each other, and behind them was the man. When they turned around to tell him goodbye, he wasn't there anymore. It's important to note that he walked slowly, and the door was on the other side of the room, so he wouldn't have managed to walk out without them seeing. They both looked at each other but didn't say anything. My sister turned around to one of the portraits as a familiar face looked back at her. Before she could register what happened, she was running out the door as she frantically looked around the church, but the old man was nowhere to be seen. She went back to my mother who was dumbfounded, staring at the oil painting of the old man they were talking to only a minute ago. Turns out, he was the benefactor of the cross from the old photograph. My sister, as I said, doesn't believe in ghosts, but to this day she swears that the nice old man was no man. Malta is on my list of places to go. It looks absolutely amazing. 
I would love to go and visit Malta. And maybe I should next year when things are a bit more normal with travel and everything. Maybe I'll go to Malta. And maybe I'll go to Malta and see a ghost. That's so strange. Like, oh, it's not often where we have somebody send in a story where someone has literally had a conversation with a ghost. Because it's often, you know, you catch a glimpse out the corner of your eye or you see somebody walking across a hallway, whatever it is. But it's not a, a, a long form conversation where you think it's a real person and then you look at a portrait and realise you're looking at that same uh, freaky and story number five comes from Kelly one of my best friend's houses was haunted the one she lived in when we were in high school her and her sister always told me stories about their ghost Betsy They told me stories of how things were moved around and they would hear noises at night, see her walk down the hallway or between rooms. I told them they were crazy. All they were hearing were their cats. Her older sister even told me of a time when she was held down in her bed and the lights flickered on and off, and someone was even pulling her hair. Now my friend and her sister were pretty tough girls. I had seen them fight each other on many occasions. I don't think Betsy was evil, but I think she liked to mess with them. Anyway, one night I spent the night with them and I had my own experience. They had recently found some kittens and had brought them home and were keeping them in their rooms. Knowing the kittens would be climbing all over me during the night, I asked my friend to put the kittens along with the other cats they already had outside the bedroom or in the bathroom so all the doors were closed and there were no cats. As we settled down, we were going to sleep. I felt something sit on the covers at the edge of the bed. My first thought was that it was a cat, but then I remembered we put all the cats out of the room. I slowly reached above my head and turned on the light and there was nothing there. Then I felt a full body of a person lay beside me on the bed and then rolled through me. I nudged my friend and told her that I thought Betsy might be in the bed with us. She just sleepily said, probably. I turned off the light and asked Betsy to go and sleep with my friend's older sister for the night. I felt the bed move like someone was getting up and it was over. I turned off the light and soon fell asleep. The only other thing I noticed at their house were things from my peripheral vision. Slight movements, things passing by. I probably would have had a heart attack if I'd actually seen her. But we had good times in that house and I'm sure Betsy had fun watching. It's amazing how in these stories people become accustomed to living with ghosts. Like that friend just saying, yeah, probably just sleepily being like, yeah, probably is Betsy and just rolling over and going to sleep and getting used to it. I wonder did at some point at some some part of them obviously recognise that she was a teenage girl like them and didn't mean them any harm and therefore they had to live alongside each other. There's a lot of living alongside each other in today's episode of learning to live with something. And story number six comes from Taylor. I'd recently started at a university in a small rural town. It's a beautiful campus, only encompassing maybe five buildings, including the dorms and enrolling less than 2000 students every year. With it being a small campus, it didn't take long to build friendships or eventually a relationship. Around October, I'd started seeing Mark, a boy from the local fraternity. My first mistake, I know. Jokes aside, Mark was an alright guy. 
I can't say I was ever especially happy during the eight months that we were together, unfortunately. Mark was a hopeless romantic. He came on strong and flaunted his I love you's early scaring me half to death. After a matter of weeks, I practically lived in his dorm room with him, and that's when it started. The more serious he became, the worse my experiences were. In the first month of school, I'd experienced sexual assault, and since then, had been in a horrible headspace and emotional place before dating Mark. Maybe my unhappiness within the relationship with Mark and attempts to heal from what happened to me were the catalysts for my experiences. Who's to say? Regardless, I can remember the night it started like it was yesterday. I just needed to clear my head, taking a drive a bit from campus as the sun began to go down. I went to Target, grabbed what I intended to make for dinner and on the way back decided to take the side roads just as it was fully night out. Like I said, being in a rural town along the countryside, street lighting was horribly and rarely available unless on the highway. The first of it was fine, even pleasant. It wasn't until I was coming up to my turn on University Avenue and rather than taking it, continued forward that the mood changed. As soon as I passed the happily lit street back to campus and kept on the dark country road, my heart dropped and my sixth sense kicked in. It was a straight shot, two-lane road, not big enough to force a U-turn. I slowed down and pulled up the university address on my phone to find the quickest way back. As I kept on waiting for the offshoot that would allow me to turn around, I swear there was a presence behind me. I can't tell you what it was, but I felt it. I felt it watching me, and with it, the most immense fear. I couldn't bring myself to confront it in my rearview mirror, so my eyes stayed glued to the road, and my body shifted as far away from my back seat as possible. I turned the radio onto anything that sounded happy, and held onto the cross I wore around my neck. I'm not especially religious, but it was the only thing I could think to do for comfort. Coming onto the offshoot and going nearly 70 miles an hour in my attempt to escape whatever I was feeling, I saw what looked like a figure in the street. It was just sitting. I quickly slowed, trying to avoid whatever the obstacle was, and very well could have hit it straight on had it not been for the reflection of my headlights in its eyes. As I came upon it, I swerved around, studying the road. It was a large, black dog just sitting and watching. Maybe it was just a coincidence, but it added to the fear inside me. Hightailing at home, I can say the rest of the drive stayed the same. I even felt it creep closer and closer to me. I was fearful and wasn't able to shake the feeling even after parking on campus or walking up to the dorm lobby. It wasn't until I stepped foot into my bedroom that I was able to have a sigh of relief. From then on, I couldn't walk or drive alone without feeling watched or followed. Somehow, only within the walls of my bedroom I ever felt safe. Maybe because I was one of hundreds of kids living in the same building. I even avoided a late afternoon, three-hour drive back home by leaving early the following morning, but after leaving the parking lot, called Mark in hysterical sobbing. This time it wasn't just fear. I could physically feel breath against my neck and an arm slide onto my shoulder. Eventually it subsided, but my heart raced until I pulled into my driveway hours later. This continued for weeks. 
a drive home from a friend, a walk from the dining hall to my dorm room, it was inescapable and always became progressively worse. I stopped eating regularly and lost a significant amount of weight as a result of not feeling comfortable enough to walk to the dining hall. I was only attending my classes when friends were able to walk with me. It was definitely a down point. I just got angry after a while. I tried yelling at it a couple of times but nothing seemed to work. I thought Mark was toying with me too. He said this was normal, something that happened to every non-family member that he got close to. I don't attribute much to Ouija boards or tarot cards, but I wouldn't mess with them either. So when Mark explained his father had a dark past of playing with the supernatural, it was hard to wrap my head around. Kind of just thought some demon got bored and discovered my fragile psyche along the way. Although I don't fully believe Mark to this day, I will say the worst of my experiences happened while staying with his family over Christmas. I'd been meaning to speak with a priest, but in a town like the one I attended university in, it was difficult to find much religious diversity. So rather than finding a solution, we went on holiday and hoped that it would stop. Mark's family lived further into the country than I had ever been. Forget having cell service or gas stations within miles of the place. It was nice though. The family owned about an acre of land where one small house sat at the front of the property and another at the back where Mark and I would be staying. The first night we arrived, I felt it almost immediately. We were sitting in the front seat of my car, just talking about our days and the plans we had the rest of the week before settling into the house. My back was against the car door, facing Mark, when the radar went off in my head. Something was standing behind me, just the window protecting me. Maybe I sound ridiculous and it was truly nothing, but when I say it was like alarm bells or a sixth sense, I mean it was the same feeling any woman feels when walking to her car in an empty parking lot late at night. Or when an individual rubs you the wrong way and you know you should just walk the other way to avoid trouble. It was a real life feeling that told me I was unsafe. Something I felt like I was constantly living in for almost two months at this point. I just started to cry uncontrollably almost. Mark was worried and asked me what was wrong. Curling into a ball, I held myself tightly. I explained what I was feeling, that there was something behind me and I knew it wanted to hurt me. I begged him to make it go away, to find a way inside the house, anything to make it stop. He tried getting me to walk into the house with him, but I wouldn't turn around or touch the door on my side. I was so emotional, he eventually walked around to the passenger side and carried me to the entryway of the house. Like magic... One step in the front door and relief washed over me. There were other experiences, but the most noteworthy happened the night his mom invited us up the land for s'mores over the campfire. Even then, the walk from one house to another proved to be a difficult trek for me. I found it hard to maintain conversation with his mom or brothers as we gathered around the fire, feeling simultaneously drained and on high alert. Most of the night was still enjoyable and uneventful. The walk back was the most difficult. The perimeter of the land was met by a grassy wooded area which was difficult to see through. Although I couldn't see them, I knew they were there. It wasn't just one this time, it was like a million eyes were on me from every direction of the land. I was being watched, and as much as I wanted to confront something, I eventually was unable to even take my eyes off my feet. Mark held me close, whispering softly that I was safe, 
and nothing could harm me here. But it didn't feel that way one bit. I felt them. I heard them. I was being toyed with. Some watched me, others taunted me with footsteps on the wooded perimeter. Although Mark swore he heard nothing as we neared the front steps of his house, the fast pace of running came from behind us. I don't know how he couldn't have heard it. Twigs snapping and leaves rustling faster and closer with every second. At this point, I just stopped and held on to Mark as tightly as I could until I felt it pass me like a gust of wind. Even after I was home with my family for the remainder of the holidays, I couldn't escape it. I have more stories. Something happened at the theatre I work at seasonally as I did my final walkthroughs of the auditorium at night. Others took place inside my own home and I genuinely felt like I was going mad. I experienced quite a bit of paranormal activity in my childhood home with my mother and brother, but that stopped after a while and is more easily dismissed because I was only a child. The stomping I used to hear outside my bedroom door could have been any part of my imagination when I was 12 but the stomping I heard alone on the second floor at night was very, very real. New Year's Eve, I snapped. My parents were opting to sleep early and leave me alone for the night, but I just couldn't handle it. I spilled everything that had happened and fought to keep tears in as I told my stories. I would have never suspected myself of embarrassment from something like this before, but I was so afraid that I was brought to tears in a desperate plea for help. My father... Being the logical mind he is, assured me that I was fine and it was only the result of high stress of a young adult mind getting to me. My stepmother, bless her, blamed my love for horror. Maybe they were both right, but it hasn't been consistent enough for simple films or stress to create such things. Ultimately, they said, it was the price of the young mind, whatever that means. Shortly into the start of the spring semester and return to campus, I ended my relationship with Mark. It had nothing to do with the spookies, mostly just incompatibility and general unhappiness. But interestingly enough, the more distance put between us emotionally, the less fear I felt or negative energy. I will say I avoid the country road I first felt it on still. I can't bring myself to experience that again. Things still happen occasionally, but nothing consistent or as serious as everything going on before. Maybe it really was my overall emotional state, but I know it stopped after ending a relationship and it hasn't affected me since. First of all, I am so sorry that you went through that. That is so horrendous. I wonder if some of it does come from feeling vulnerable in in spaces, like feeling vulnerable in your car, driving on a country road on your own, feeling vulnerable on that walk where there's a big open space between the two houses, feeling vulnerable when you're sat with your back to something and you can't see behind you. I think the feelings of vulnerability create an anxiety that in turn can create pretty wild things in our brain. And that's not trying to dismiss the story whatsoever. But I, I it's interesting that when you stopped dating Mark, that, that it then subsided I wonder if just dating him not because of him but him dating him being around him just didn't make you feel safe either way it sounds like a pretty terrifying situation to be in and mentally draining I I wouldn't wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you so much to Nicole, Ben, Jessica, Chantel, Kelly and Taylor for sending in your stories. If you'd like to send in your stories, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next time. <laughs>